Payments is core. Payments is one of those things that's like how shit really works. And that's really interesting. I felt the same way when I went into healthcare. Just like, here's this massive behemoth part of how the world works that I know nothing about. And that can drive you really far when you're an early startup employee, that hunger. And you have to really feel that way. Not like feel that way because people are tweeting about it, but feel that way inside. Do I want to go read extra books about this? Do I want to take night classes about this? Do I want to be thinking about this 10 hours a day? And if you feel that way, it will happen. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. First of all, I loved talking to your team. Good. The founders of Modern Treasury, first of all, like sweet humans. Amazing. When I talk to them, I'm like, you're sweet. Yes. You know, like you're very like gentle people. And very authentic. Does that resonate? Why do you think I work there? Okay, cool. So actually every one of your references said, yeah, we kind of had to push her to do this. And I'm like, it's well, true. I don't want to be scary. Like, what's the deal? And they're like, I don't know. You should ask her. So I want to ask you, like, why don't you like to do these? Why did you need pushing? That's what I want to know. I would rather talk about either my team or the company than myself. But don't you think that part of your responsibility as an executive at the company is to speak on behalf of the company? And sure, does that mean that I ask questions about you that are very personal in nature? Of course. But you're also a spokesperson for the organization. Yeah, that part I love doing. Yeah. It's just the me part. And you talked about the sweet and wonderful founders. That's them pushing me so I grow, which is mutual. So yeah. I'm here on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. But elated. they're right to tell you that. I'm elated <laughs> to have you. Well, it's funny because, so as an example, the traditional way that media is done for executives is same thing as you. They want to go talk about the company. Yeah. Okay. And then it's like, we're starting to talk about like ACH payments and everyone's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Do you want to hear other people talk about that? No way. No. Well, I mean, I might, but 99.9% of people don't. <laughs> oh, man. Well, have you been in this office before? I have a long time ago. No way. Yeah. For what? Grand Rounds? Actually, after Grand Rounds, I don't think you guys had this office. When did this office open? I don't, it, it predated me. Yeah. I don't think you guys had it or it was just opening when I left to become an operator. I left Grand Rounds for about three, four months while I was trying to f- figure out what I was going to do. Yeah. So thankful that that's normal in Silicon Valley, that you can like grind and grow with the company and then whoosh, Is it normal? In. I feel like it's acceptable yeah, okay. to take a pause and step back. And it was in that journey I was chatting with people about opportunities and what might be next. It's interesting because the conventional wisdom is don't leave a job without another job. I agree with you, but I think in the Valley, because we burn so hard and we grow so much, you see it more often that it's okay to like step back Take a few weeks or take a beat or find out what you want to do next and then go for it. Yeah. And you're like, how many generations of Silicon Valley? Like five? No, I would say Bay Area, not Silicon Valley. I'm the What's first the person to work in tech. Okay. But like, you know what I mean? Yeah. From geographically, fifth generation on one side and third on the other. Fifth. Yeah. There's a lot of people from my family here. And you left for university. I left for college and then I lived abroad on and off for about six years. I went and saw things and then I came screaming back. Wow. Where do you live? 
I live in San Francisco. You do? Yeah. No way. Yeah. And you love the city? I love the city. San Francisco is going through hard times yeah, as right a, now. Like, as a lifelong San Franciscan. Yeah, it's sad what's happening right now. Is it fair to acknowledge that it's not what it was? Yes, but I also think it will come back. I mean, all cities have ups and downs through their journey. Think mm-hmm. about New York. Think about Chicago. We're definitely in a down. There's no way you could pretend otherwise, but there's still such greatness here. And did you grow up in San Francisco? I grew up in Marin County. My mom grew up in San Francisco. My grandmother was here, so I was here a lot growing up. My dad grew up in Marin County when it was still working class. I mean, the whole deal. It's all here. And when you were growing up, what was conversation like at the dinner table for Rachel? Well, two answers to that. My parents come from huge families. My dad is one of four. My mom is one of five plus two step siblings. I only have one brother, but like endless well of aunts and uncles and cousins. And so dinners were sometimes very big. That's one thing I would say. But the topic of conversation in our nuclear family, it was usually work Mm -hmm. or politics Mm -hmm. or values. My parents both worked in progressive nonprofits and that was the discussion at the dinner table. What's going on with politics? What's going on with the world? You're not going to remember this. Maybe... 10 years ago, your second ever LinkedIn post. Uh Uh-oh. It was a question. No comments, no likes on it, just to be clear. (laughs) Clearly (laughs) a successful post. I want your reflection on this question that you asked. Okay. You said, is the Bay Area good at building huge tech companies because it's full of early adopters? And then in quotes, you said, as opposed to brilliant innovators. Hmm. I thought the question is very timely now. Yeah. And I thought you might have a unique perspective given how deep your roots are in the Bay Area. Yeah. And now I would say the answer is both. For sure, both. Once you start to hire in field teams, you realize there's something very special in the water here, who it attracts and who stays. What do you mean? Just the quality of talent, the diversity of talent in here person. is very special. All, all over the country, but here, there's something special here. Who you go see at the coffee shop, the conversations that are around. I know why I asked that question, which is I did graduate school in the UK, which I loved. But went which, to Cambridge. I went to Cambridge. And that environment, in that environment, what they value is tradition more than innovation. And I'm being very reductive. This is not like a black no, and white good. thing. But the institution turned 800 while I was there, and we lived and breathed many of the traditions that were hundreds of years old. And on the spectrum, if you had to do things the way things used to be done or try a newfangled thing that may or may not work, on average, they would pick the way things used to be done because that's how you uphold tradition. Then you move back to the Bay Area, and it's like, even though I'm from here, it gives you fresh perspective to have been gone for so long. And here's a place where on the spectrum, if something could be a little bit better by trying it new, we would try it new. And that's where that question came from, which is like, is the audience here just primed to do things differently and try things out? And I think they are. Do you think that in technology, sometimes we have a disdain for tradition? You know, like we're almost anarchists in the way that we want things (laughs) to evolve. Yeah, maybe. I hadn't thought about it all the way, like to the teleological end, but yeah, maybe a little bit. Not in a bad way. No, I don't think so either. I mean, there's a reason why there aren't very many billion plus dollar startups coming out of Europe. Yeah. I think that's changing too. I think- Barely. Right. Barely. Yeah. I think both are true. You gave a TED talk 
about climate change in 2009. Look at what you do now. And I was watching this video and I'm like, wait a second. She's the COO of Modern Treasury and like less than a decade ago, she's giving tech talks about very scientific things. You left a track that nobody really leaves in academia. My mom's a PhD in chemistry. Oh, cool. She's still in, in this, chemistry. Yes, she's still in this world doing that. What gave? I mean, I've done it a handful of times, leaving a track to go mm -hmm. to a new place, mm -hmm. sort of like leaving the golden ticket. I think the thread I would pull through it is hunger to learn. Not that you can't learn in a lifelong journey in academia, but it wasn't the right place for me. And so there's some kind of like deep-seated curiosity and hunger to learn that pushes you beyond what everyone tells you you shouldn't do, which like you have to stay and do the next thing, get the postdoc and get the professorship and make it through tenure. I think that's the thread I would draw through going into investing and then trying out operating and then going into operating first at AngelList and then healthcare and now fintech. It's like a hunger to learn that has fueled me at each step. I have a different perspective looking back, but if I put myself back in the shoes of being a PhD student, I think that's what I was do doing moving it? forward. No. Okay, what's your perspective looking back? My perspective looking back is more like it was a labyrinthine pinball way of yeah. finding myself in a much more people-oriented place. That makes sense. So academia, I'm sure you know for your mom, is a very solo job. I mean, of course you have a team and a community, but the pursuit of academic experimentation and knowledge is really in your mind. Were you scared shitless? Of course. Everyone around you How and that's you mentoring you is saying, don't go. And if you go, you can never come back. Right. Because on paper, it looks crazy. Yes. And when you were going through the decision-making process, did you write like a pros and cons list? Like, How did you ultimately get over the hump to leave? In academia, I knew. I mean, I was mentored by the most amazing advisor, who's now head of Department of Chemistry at Cambridge. I looked up at him and his brilliance in his life and thought, this is, you're incredible. I am not you. What fills you up all day long doesn't fill me up. Like, I just knew. When I left investing to go operating, I made long lists. And when I left healthcare to go fintech, I made a long list. It was more process-oriented later on. But in the beginning, you just follow your intuition. And you go to DFJ, which is... Now Threshold. Now Threshold. Yeah. In 2010. And you were a junior... Yeah, junior investor. Junior investor. You did four years there. Which is a crazy move. Like, that's a crazy move. It was a lucky move. I got that, a PhD That worked in, out very well. Totally. I got a PhD in startups. Yeah, 100%. And you were there for four years. And fair to say, like, kind of a turbulent time. For sure. I watched the organization go through like, succession planning. Wasn't the split kind of happening while you were there? Yep. It unfolded under my eyes. Any reflections on that? My reflections... By the way, that is the hardest thing for venture firms to get, right? 100%. Take it from me this being at Kleiner Perkins. <laughs> it is very hard to get it right. Totally. because And that's why building a firm for 50 plus years is unheard of. Totally. And because it's an apprenticeship industry, you apprentice to a family. Well, it's a family of peers, but it's to a family. And when that family you know, moves on in their career, they go into retirement, it's very hard to continue. I would say my reflections on that time are less about succession planning and more about like management and structure and interpersonal skill. That's more what I use now. Mm -hmm. But yes, it was a 
wild thing to watch and experience. Some mm-hmm. very big personalities, some brilliant people, lots of discussion of where they wanted to go. Well, venture firms are funny, aren't they? Because these aren't managers. In fact, most of the senior people in venture firms really want nothing to do with management. That's actually why they are great at their jobs. 100%. I would force them. <laughs> Every six months, I would say, I need you to sit down and give me a full review because I need the information. Yeah. That drive you kind of crazy? Classic me. Of course it did. I mean, it's another reason. But once you stuck I tasted it operating. Years. Well, I was on a I was on the track. I had the golden ticket. Not to say I would like have a made partner it. Partner track. Partner track. And I had some great early investments. I had some total failures too. Yeah. And the way they managed their early investors, at least then, I don't know now, was it was very sink or swim. Like they gave me boards that were failing. I really got a PhD in startups. Mm-hmm. I sat in on everything, public board meetings, hundreds of board meetings, thousands of pitches. It was great. But yes, there were parts of it that drove me nuts. That's what I'm saying about following your intuition and taking the leap of leaving the track of like those things that nag you, you have to listen to them sometimes. What was nagging you? What you're talking about, no management, no career progression and growth, the interpersonal dynamics of a small team that never changes. Yeah, put another way, like it's not really a team. Yeah, it's like a tennis team. It's like a baseball team. That's my favorite analogy. Interesting. Because baseball reminds me the most of venture because- individual stats matter so much, if that makes sense. It does. And in fact, managers have relatively little power over the outcome of the game compared to potentially other sports. Like they're not running plays. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're trying to get around the bases. (laughs) Yeah, I think- Like managers aren't putting, like they're putting the lineup together. The lineup is relatively static. They're deciding if it's a right-handed or a left-handed pitcher. Right, Pinch hitting somebody. But your individual stats matter a lot. And when you're forming a baseball team, you're actually just trying to find the similarities and differences that harmonize into one roster. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I've always thought of it as a tennis team where you're playing a lot of individual games, but you play for one team. That makes sense too. Similar to what you're talking about. I think probably it's in between. Yeah. And then can you... Put me in Rachel's brain. Were you oscillating back and forth between the opportunity cost of staying and leaving? Oh my God, yes. There was probably a point where it was clear that DFJ was, this is Tim Draper. These are like Steve Jervis. Like these are legends. You knew all the right people. You had a front row seat into what was going to happen. I'm sure there was plenty of options on the dirt road that were kind yeah, of appearing Yeah, there was lots for you. of opportunity. And you were doing pretty well. And by the way, like being a partner is a pretty good gig. It's a great life. And it's so intellectually stimulating. Exactly. So how did that calculus unfold for you? So the truth of it is I tried to hire someone who ended up taking, refusing our job and taking a job at AngelList. And I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I think no one had ever refused an investment job at DFJ who had gotten all the way to offer. People had dropped out along the way. So I tried to hire this person and he said no. And I was like annoyed at that, typical me. And we ended up becoming friends, really brilliant person who was very early at AngelList. And that's how I ended up getting involved in AngelList. They formed a council of people to sort of understand what was going on in the investment community. I started coming into their office more and trying to figure out what was going on with their product. And then maybe like six, nine months into just partnering, they weren't an investment. We're just you know how it is in the Valley. Sometimes you just engage and go deep. I was like, you guys, there's really a retention problem on the investor side of this marketplace. And I think there's some products that we could build here. And they were like, sweet, we're like 12 people. You can build whatever you want. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I ended up building those products, my first part of growth and content and marketing, those first products, not on payroll. I just came in a couple days a week and I worked on it nights and weekends and got really close to the team and we shipped it and it worked. Were you still at DFJ? I was still at DFJ yeah. doing my full-time job. This was, I went in every Tuesday to Angelus, got permission from them to do that. And I worked nights and weekends and it was wildly successful and I got really close to the team. And that was like catnip. That was the first time I knew like, oh, this is, I like my nights and weekends operating, job operating. so much more. Mm -hmm. And that was how I was brave enough to take the leap into Grand Round. So I did that, the slow build towards that for about a year and I don't remember exactly, maybe a year and a half. At Angelist. Yeah. And they wanted me to come full time, which was the lucky spot to be in. And I said, I love you guys. I've learned enough. I'm going to go try operating, but I know operating's for me. And you decided not to do operating at Angelist? Yeah. Why? I felt like I had gotten a lot from them. and was really close to them. They're wonderful. And it's, we talk about relentless learning and curiosity. I wanted to throw myself into something crazy and hard and new. If you were an alien scientist okay. coming into this world okay, and they met you, how would you describe what startups are to them? Never thought about this question. Small groups of people trying to build new, unprobable things. I think that's a pretty good description. Thanks. Yeah. I'm trying to capture the fact that some startups build physical things, like aliens, where you point to them, be like, a startup made that spaceship, a startup made that bike. And some startups, of course, build software in. So I think you have to keep it kind of generic. Patrick Collison yeah. from Stripe. I think it was a tweet where he was like, do you ever think that everything that you see in the physical world was built by somebody? Just like when you flush the toilet and you push <laughs> that little lever, like that little lever, someone was like, we need this for a toilet. I think about it all the time because my husband's a mechanical engineer, so he's always got his eyes on that and has trained me to see the world that way. Um, it's so cool. It's almost baby-like. Yeah. Fascination. When you look at the world like that. Yes. Your husband, when did you meet him? I met him in 2013, 10 years ago. While you were at DFJ? Yes. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. So you go to AngelList. That was a good description of the startups, by the way. Oh, thanks. Because I came up with that question this morning and I'm like, I like that question. Okay. I was curious. Ask your next 10 guests and I've see got, what you get. I can't wait. <laughs> you go to Grand Rounds. You're a director there. How many people were there when you joined? Like 30, 35. Oh, it was tiny. Yeah. Series A? Yes. Was it? They a, were raising their B. Was it a DFJ investment? No, we tried to get the deal and lost it. That's how I met them. That's how you met them? Mm-hmm. And then I got permission from the investing partner. I was like, I don't want to muddy the waters. This is so complicated. I want to be above board. And she goes, ugh, we lost the deal to Greylock. Go for it. <laughs> I had already told them Go I was going to leave to oh, operate. Okay. Go for it, trying to. Go see if you can get the job there. Yeah. And she actually was very sweet, Emily Melton. She introduced me to the CEO and was like, I really wanted the deal, but at the very least, take Rachel. And it was like a funny way to meet them. And everybody kind of knew it was time. I had told them, hey, I've decided I want to go operate. It's the thing I think will fill me up. And we had a bunch of conversations about it. It was all, it was all open. It's too small a working environment and venture to not be transparent. I completely agree. Was it jarring leaving your cushy life and venture to go to a 30-person <laughs> startup? It was so exhilarating. I mean, yes, of course it was jarring, but it was so exhilarating and so fun. I don't even think I noticed. We were right here on 2nd Street. 30 people. Yeah. 
And then you did your gig for a year and a half, got promoted. So you were there for almost four years. Over four years. Yeah. I had a bunch of different jobs there. And how did Grand Rounds grow from then? I left when they were like 550, 600. Employee count is not a perfect proxy for growth, but we went from our first early customers and that small, really tight-knit team to many, many multi-million dollar contracts and a big team growing to the next, a whole different level stage of operations. Great training ground. And then again, walk me through this decision-making process. Why was it time to go? Bunch of reasons. I was ready to leave healthcare. So I sort of grew up in marketing. I mean, I did a bunch of jobs there, but I grew up sort of in marketing and content on the heels of the angel list work. And the most interesting stuff you have to do with your hands tied behind your back in healthcare because of HIPAA. And HIPAA is wonderful <laughs> legislation. It protects you and me. And I'm happy to have it as a consumer because I don't want my personal information out there. But if you're actually trying to get people interested in a new service and you can know no information about mm. them, it's hard. So that was one reason. It had I don't know how to explain it. It had just become time. What other reasons? It was just, we were ready. Did you feel like you capped out? Was there a VP gig that you couldn't get? No, me, the way the marketing functions were organized when I was left, or me and this other woman each ran half of it, which was a weird way to split it. And we both left within three, four months of each other. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't feel like that. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering. Yeah, it's a good question. There wasn't like a job that was open that I applied and didn't get it. And then you go to Modern Treasury. I was reporting to product at the time, actually. Oh, you were? Mm-hmm. Marketing was? That <laughs> was running like the consumer and growth side at I that time. That. Yeah. So, I, and I actually reported to almost every function in that business in the four years. I had seven bosses. I was in a business unit. I was in product. I was in marketing. Yeah, it's like your I was MBA 2.0. Totally. In the real world. And in, a, I mean, lucky to be through that size and scale. Like from like tiny. A growing, like a growing company. Yeah. Yeah. Then you go to Modern Treasury as... The first employee. Yes. What is a treasury and why is this one modern? (laughs) (laughs) Not how I would answer the question. Treasury is a certain function of a finance team. Okay. We didn't even serve, I don't know, 10% of it when we were three people, four of us and a dog. Modern treasury is an operating system for money movement. That is what we do. And our customers come to us with two jobs to be done. They need to move a lot of money so high volume or really complex or really specific types of context that they operate in, or they need to track a lot of money in a com- same environment, high volume or complex. And we build a suite of tools and APIs and dashboards that help them do that. So treasury means a lot of things in different contexts. It can mean bank relationships. It can mean cash flow management. It can mean reconciliation. There's a lot of financial buzzwords for you about what a treasury team can be responsible for. But our system is about software that sits between the software world. We believe every payment will start and end in software in the future. And banking infrastructure, which is 50 years old, sometimes older, (laughs) and hard to interact with. And that's the interface where we build our infrastructure. Now she's in her sweet spot. If I put myself in Rachel's brain, making this decision to go be the first employee at a startup, had it raised funding yet? A seed. We had raised a seed. Benchmark hadn't done the A yet. No, not for a year. And your husband, correct me if I'm wrong, at home is an entrepreneur. Yes. Like he is a founder. He's a three-time CEO and co-founder. Yes. Did it's you a guys, lot for one household. Yeah, did you guys look at each other and be like, so is this f***ing nuts? Yes. Like, hey, maybe you should go to like 
Goldman Sachs, sweetheart. Right. And like, I don't know, or maybe I should quit and go to some secure job. Yeah. It's a very wise question. I would say we looked at each other and said it was nuts. He also knew what a ride it could be and was so encouraging and understanding of the risks that we were going to take. It was not like trying to explain it to someone who didn't get it. He understood. We also decided together, like, well, given our age and where we're at and what's going on in life, it's probably unlikely that we can both be early startup employees <laughs> many, many more times in our life. So let's try it now. How did the conversation start with Modern Treasury? I think the way you become an early employee is to know somebody. I had known Dimitri personally for a long time. He was at Better Place when I was at DFJ, mm. still doing clean tech before I did software there. Then he became an ER foundation. We became, anyway, we knew each other as professional friends and acquaintances. He's, lo you talk to him. He's lovely. He's lovely. very easy to become lovely friends with. Lovely is a great way with. to describe him. Yes. And then a few years later, I was dating my now husband and walked into his like big house of shared roommates and there was Dimitri. And I was like, what no are way. you doing here? And he's like, what are you doing here? Anyway, Dimitri and my husband are also close friends. So I've known him for a long, long time. And when I left DFJ and, or left Grand Rounds, excuse me, and took that time to pause and be like, what do I really want? Yeah. Is that when you put the list together? Yes. And I did the whole list. You did, did a list. all the exercise. Totally. Tell I hired me, a Come I, on, let's go through the list. I hired a coach. Well, I blew, no way. I blew it all out of the water. I didn't do any of those things, but that's wait, how good hired, decisions wait, 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 are going to be. Pause, pause, pause. You hired a coach? Yeah. Because I was like, I need someone to help me make this decision who's you an quit? outsider. You quit? Yes. You hired a coach? Yep. To help you with the, where do I go next? Yeah. What should I do? Okay. And how do I make sense of this? And what have I learned? Where do I want to go? So we talked about like the slow pinball towards people oriented stuff that I knew that I walked into the room. I said, I definitely know people stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to be connected and close to and responsible for people stuff. How do I make that happen? And she did all the things that you would expect a coach to do, like, you know, must have, nice to have, can't have, and all those things. Mm. And then translate that into real attributes. And are you going to stay in technology? Will it be small or medium or large? And does it matter to you the size of your team or does it matter who you apprentice to and work for? And we those conversations. So I wrote it all down. I don't, I haven't looked at the spreadsheet since then. I'm sure I could pull it up. I'm sure it would make me laugh. But what I thought I wanted mm -hmm. <laughs> was to go to a very large company, right? So I had seen Grand Rounds through BCD and was very clear where how it was going to go for the next maybe 1,000 people. I hadn't seen 5,000, 10,000, 50,000. And I hadn't seen how teams operate at that scale. So I thought, let me go learn that. That's what I want. I want to go manage a big team and report to a great manager. That is could not be more opposite of the path I Did chose. Did you interview? Oh, yeah. And I was like lucky. You did the Facebooks. I did. And I was lucky to have opportunity. I mean, I had a lot of opportunities to choose from. I was in a very lucky position. Yeah. And I went for a bunch of long walks by myself. Like, oh, there's something pulling me towards modern. Like, oh, something's pulling me towards this. What is it? And in the end, it was the founder. I mean, the same thing that always pulls you when you're an early employee, the founders and the product. And you were not working at that point. Mm -mm. Do you think there's any way you could have made that decision working? No. Definitely not. Like you needed the mental space. I needed the space. And I think some of the courage comes from the clutter going down. Yeah. Explain that. When you have a million things on your to-do list, which I do now every day, all the time, your to-do list becomes what you're doing all the time. So it's hard to get to like the deeper core of what matters until you yeah, give it some space, just like you said. Yeah. And where do you think the courage comes from? Why do you think there's an inverse relationship between clutter and courage? I'm trying to think of a how to put words to it. I just think the clutter is distracting. Yeah. And making a hard decision. Like we talked uh, 
bunch of times in this conversation about leaving the golden ticket. Yeah. If every piece of information coming in is saying no, 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 no. Yeah. Then it's hard to say yes. Yeah. So you have to take some space. Yeah, I think that's well said. You have to like find it inside yourself. What do you think was drawing you? What was the feeling that was pulling you towards modern treasury? So a bunch. The founders are amazing. You've talked to them. They're brilliant and their product insight was really smart, but also just they are good people. Mm -hmm. And when you're going to be that early and working that hard Mm -hmm. for that many hours, it really matters that you work with founders that you care about. The second was the product. And, you know, in the early days, you don't really know exactly where a product's going to go. But I had lived, you know, I was leading the growth function at Grand Rounds. I had the biggest discretionary spend in the company. That's what growth teams do. They spend money to get money, Mm -hmm. right? So I had lived the payment operations pain of tracking a lot of volume of money movement and trying to build ROI studies. Mm. Now, this is in a more AP context, a more marketing context. So it didn't translate exactly, but I felt like really connected to the pain of what the product was going after. Mm. And that's what I couldn't get out of my head. Yeah. What was the state of the business when you joined? So they finished YC in summer of 18. I was chatting with them, like having coffee and lunch with them in the fall. They had signed, I think, a customer and a half when I came in January. Today, just fast forward, and then I want to keep digging. It's raised a series A, B, and C, Benchmark, Altimeter, Salesforce, SVB, raised at the last valuation for whatever that's worth at $2.2 billion. Okay, so you joined, and it's you and the founders. Yeah. When I asked Dimitri and the founders... Why did you hire Rachel and what did she need to do? Oh, God, what they the say? The answer was hilarious. <laughs> they said, we needed to get people to trust us. And that included brand, marketing, talent. We felt like we needed to appear bigger than we were. We needed things like color on the website, <laughs> some content, some events. Yeah, all true. <laughs> That's hilarious. What do you make of that? Accurate. I mean, we did every, it was four of us. We did everything at that time. They're right. The company had a strong core early product vision because they're all product and engineering founders. And they had those first customers and we were in conversations, took us a while to learn how to sell, but that was happening organically. What we didn't have was this like public story. That sounds more grandiose. Just like, what were we to people? So that's what I worked on the most in those first six months. If you were advising someone who's interested in joining an early stage startup, how would you advise them? On whether to take a certain job or how Uh, would I advise them to build marketing? No, like uh, more in the evaluation, like how do you find it? What are you evaluating? What are the things that you think should be at the top of the list? What do you think is, and this is a multi-part question, I hate (laughs) multi-part questions, but what do you think that most people over index on that you think is probably not that important? The number one answer is definitely people. If you're going to be the first employee or the seventh employee or the 10th employee, you're joining a family. Not market, not product. For sure. The first is people. Okay. Because with people that you trust and want to work with that hard, you'll find it. The second is either market or product or both. In this case, I feel lucky enough that I got both, but like something that keeps the spark in you. Yep. So for me, I felt very connected to this product. I also, we didn't have a defined market, like no TAM, no, don't do any of that analysis. Mm-hmm. It's all BS. But mm-hmm. are you operating in a space that you want to learn? Payments is core. Payments is one of those things that's like how shit really works. And 
that's really interesting. I felt the same way when I went into healthcare. Just like, here's this massive behemoth part of how the world works that I know nothing about. And that can drive you really far when you're an early startup employee, that hunger. And you have to really feel that way. Not like feel that way because people are tweeting about it, but feel that way inside. Do I want to go read extra books about this? Do I want to take night classes about this? Do I want to be thinking about this 10 hours a day? And if you feel that way, it will happen. And how did you figure out in those first couple of months what the hell to do? Like, like, like <laughs> there's so much to do. That's what I mean. Yeah. Some of it was obvious, like setting up benefits and, you know, the like building a company stuff you have to grind through and learn and do. Some of it was less obvious. And I do give this advice a lot, like specifically what the quotes that you talked about of putting colored pixels on a website, having a website, <laughs> putting a story Still, out there. Yeah. The thing that we did that I would do again, and I would counsel a startup to do is have wonder about what you are working on. Wonder is totally contagious. And whatever you're working on, you're probably one of the nerdiest people. Hopefully your founders or you are some of the nerdiest people in the world about it, which means you know a lot about it. So that's cool. You have expertise. Expertise comes with being at a startup, hopefully, if you're at the right one. If you can step out of your shoes and think about what's cool about it to an outsider then you can build content strategy and marketing and brand around that. And there's so many stories of that type of content being like so fascinating to the world, like the magic school bus when we were kids <laughs> mm. or Ted, or I think YC startup school is the same. There's so many examples of where if you can be my Ted talk, honestly, is the same. I have not watched it for a decade too embarrassing, but it's like an anthropologist look at outside in. What are we doing? And it's weird. I'm not talking about the graphs and like what they show. How do we do what we do? That is what we worked on in the early days. It was so fun. Also, by the way, along the way, you learn what is interesting about what we do. <laughs> yeah. This might sound like a weird question, but did they sign you full time? No, start? it's not a weird question. And I would advise the same thing. Tell I was like, I was a consultant for eight weeks. It's like a try before you buy. And it was, I was the one who pushed for it. And by the way, I think Modern Treasury did that for the first 20 or so employees, no? Not for all the employees, but for our, our early senior employees. We did it for a like couple a, times. Yeah. And it worked. Totally worked. And it was mutual. Tell, I was Tell the me one, about that, because I think that's super interesting. I was the one who said, listen, I've never been somewhere so small. I'm nervous about working with such a close friend. I like get it. I'm risking it all to come here. But we on both sides need an easy out. We're adults. We can talk about this. We can talk about it. It's like having a prenup. You can talk about it up front. And so I said, I don't anticipate that we need to use this option, but I'd rather we've talked about it. And at eight weeks, if we're calling in, it just doesn't feel right. We have an easy way to say like, hey, I came in and worked for a few months on and it's this. And it's a mutual option. It was mutual. And by the way, like three days in, we tore it up and it was like, yeah, definitely not going to happen. But it made me feel much better taking the risk. It got you over the hump. Got me over the hump. And then on the other side, when we were hiring people into this model, it made me feel like, well, we're really going to know what it's like to work together. It's actually a pretty good, like, it's not a bad way of doing it. Oh, yeah, I would do it again. You would? Yeah. And did you ever hire anybody under that construct? No, I didn't. But we but hired other people did. in the organization. Yeah. Did you ever experience this thing, Claire Hughes-Johnson, at Stripe was talking about this. She was an early employee and she has not a dissimilar dynamic with the founders. She's COO. They are incredibly bright. They are deeply technical. They can basically build anything if they want to. Yeah. She expressed some frustration about how 
they needed to do like a review, like reviews. And Patrick and John were like, perfect. We'll write review software. And she's like, we don't need to do that. And they're like, no, well, we can write it better than what exists. And she goes, maybe we can, but that's probably not the best use of our time. That's such a funny story. Did you have anything like that where you're like, this is a bad trade-off? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because it's not uncommon for founders that Silicon Valley is typically investing in. Yeah, to think they can build it better themselves. Exactly. Yeah, it's very common. It's the same energy that gives them the ability to build the startup in the first place. You know, we haven't had that very often. Modern Treasury is like very unafraid to do certain things totally our own weird way. Mm. So like, for example, our value statement is a 150 word essay. (laughs) Like it's just a small essay. It was five little aphorisms wasn't right for us. Anyway, buried in that essay is the phrase, do it right the first time, which we have lived from the beginning. And it's one of the things I feel a lot of connection to. And part of do it right the first time is acknowledging what you can and can't do best. And so like if it's better to buy, well, buy. we sell infrastructure. We ask people to buy instead of build all the time. And we have the same philosophy. We'll go out there and see what's best and pull that in and make we'll make it ours. But I never had to fight the like build review software kind of construct. Are there any battles that strike you that a first business hire yeah. would have to have with technical founders that yeah. most people, I don't know, wouldn't think I have a different one, which is I'm the process person. Okay, give it That's to what me. they always tease me about. Okay. Like, ugh, Rachel's the process person. Like, what's an example? An example is it's also do it right the first time. We have done full company performance reviews every six months since we were 14 people. And maybe this is a scar of working in environments or with managers who didn't do a good job of this kind of thing. But what I told them is I don't want us to be five years and 200 employees in and no one knows how to give career feedback. And we've never built a review process going back to your question. I don't want to like bring in a foreign object and there's anaphylactic shock. So we're going to just learn how to do it right from the beginning and the muscle will grow with us. And we have done it since the beginning. It's been great. By the way, this process is like three questions, answer in bullets. We're not talking about trying to drag the system down, but you have to, I'm the person who's like, okay, and we're spending four weeks and in week one, you do it yourself. And in week two, you do it for beers. And there's a bunch of examples like that. And that's a very classic, like business person to founder. Very classic. Yeah. How long were the founders selling with you? I mean, we still, all the executive team still sells all the time. In the early days, mostly Matt and Sam were coding and mostly Dimitri and I were selling, I mean, and building and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Matt runs products, so he's really connected to our customer base. I don't know. We've all sold all the way along. Can you talk about when you discovered that Hacker News might be an interesting (laughs) growth outlet? Yeah, that was actually Matt's idea. We were maybe six months into this content strategy I had talked about of like, have wonder and write about why ACH payments are actually cool and interesting because they are if you write about it and think about it in the right way. Beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. Don't roll your eyes. (laughs) But if you can get outside of yourself enough, it, d- it does become interesting. Yeah. And one of the dorky things about ACHs is that they can be returned and made unsuccessful for up to 60 days after the payment gets out. So it's very different than other payment flows. And one of the dorky return codes that we were uncovering in the like 600 page notcha spec is a return code that says the recipient on the other side of the instructions is deceased. And we were like, does this really happen often enough that we need to have an official return code? And that sparked a whole conversation about what happens when you try and pay a dead person. And that was what landed us on the front page of Hacker News the first time. That's a good one. Just starts from nerdiness. Any other weird things that you did in the early days to 
that seems like a very random growth lever. Yes. Not sustainable. Well, the Hacker News part is luck and random. Yeah. And, but writing what you know was not luck. What do you mean? Writing about what you're doing in a really detailed, thoughtful, clear way so an outsider can understand. I would do that time and time again. I do think that is repeatable. Where do you think that helps you the most? With customers? With talent? It, with for sure it has helped partners? with talent. But our customers, so many of our customers find us through our content. They're trying to figure out how to do their own high-scale, complex payments stuff, money movement stuff. And it's very opaque to understand. So if you're trying to enter the ecosystem or build the product or figure out where your money is and get real-time visibility or like get payments to be faster. You're in the seat. You're trying to research. You're trying to figure it out. And it's not just product people and engineers who find us that way. Yeah. It's everyone in the company. I think the gold standard for companies doing this is uh, Cloudflare. And they've done it since the beginning. And yeah. it's excellent. Their content is excellent. It's excellent. And it's very suited to their target audience. Of course. One of the things Cloudflare writes about, especially well, actually, is when they have errors, when they have bugs. It's one of the things that makes their engineering brand so trustworthy. In the show notes. Um, <laughs> then things start to work. 2019, which was your second year? First year? I joined in the beginning of 2019 and then we raised the A in the end and of the year. Yeah, you've like raised from benchmark. Things are working. Yeah. 2019 by, seems like most objective standards was a great year for the business. It was a great first year for the business. And you're like, hell yeah. Yeah, nine um, employees, let's go. Yeah, and then you, I think you exited the year at what? How many employees? Nine. Nine? You exited at nine? Yeah. You raised a series A with nine employees? Mm-hmm. I think we raised a series A. I think we closed a series A and two engineers in the same week. And then we hired the ninth right after. Wow. And then the following year, it keeps growing. Yeah. By the way, this is like, we're talking two years ago, like three years. Like this is nothing. This just happened. 2020. Um, yeah. COVID. This is just all happening. Then you start having what feels like a keep the lights on problem, mm-hmm. which is like. Scale. Beautiful. That's yeah. the best problem. Yeah. There is a, I think in one of your articles written somewhere, the business was growing at a 37% compounded monthly rate. 37% monthly. Yes. Like we're cooking. 2020 was really hectic. And how did that feel? Like the wheels were falling off, but also like the world's most exciting moment. Tell me more. So we were, more and more customers were coming and each customer that comes, they grow their volume with us. The reason that compounding rate is high is because you have two compounding growth factors inside of it. And every edge case happens at scale. So we had every edge case at scale and we're adding new banks and new rails. And it's just the same story at every startup. You start to hit growth and you're like stuff, rickety, stuff is rickety and comes apart and you have to pay attention to it. And yeah. we did. Those are the moments where every three to four months, everything breaks and you have to build everything from the ground up. That's right. What is the most surprising thing to you during that time? That well, just- this is the same six months as COVID. So at the same time yeah. that we're going through some rebuild and refactor and all that stuff, we're also learning to be a remote company, mm-hmm. higher remote. Mm-hmm. Everything that you just rely on that you think has become second nature now is not second nature and you got to go from scratch. But then the flip side of that is like, of course, the journey of modern treasury, amazing founders, brilliant product insight, et cetera. But also some of the external exogenous events that have happened to us have shaped us for the better, like better lucky than good. And COVID so horrible in so many ways and so challenging in so many ways, also taught us to scale a bunch of systems and processes that we never would have gotten around to dealing with until we were 500 people. 
How do you hire diverse talent at scale? You have to force yourself a little more in a remote environment than you do in an in-person environment where you can just chat with people and it's more low key. Yeah. Is there anything that strikes you during the scaling time that was unexpected? Of course, COVID. (laughs) What were you like? Well, this wasn't on my scaling bingo card. I guess you'd seen it already once. Yeah. That exact stage you're talking about of like 30 to we're 175 employees now had been my first two years there. So some of it was familiar. Then things are going well. Things continue to go well. 2021, you raised two rounds. Yeah. And we hired a lot of engineers in 2021. You raised like a sum of over a hundred million in that year. Well, we closed this. The C had two parts and we closed it in 22, but yes. Yes. You raised a lot of money. Yeah, we did. I am very curious. As this is all happening, you start getting all these fancy investors around the table. Did you ever experience this process of advice coming in where you seek advice? Yeah. People give you advice. Yeah. Then others unsolicited give you advice. (laughs) How do you filter advice? Because... It's not always applicable. Because it's not always applicable. Totally. Because your business is so unique. Yeah. Every business is so unique. I have so many. I'm going to answer in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, go ahead. The first is something, again, I would repeat for a startup. I can't remember if it was Dimitri's idea or all of our idea. Anyway, we have an advisor program where every, I guess, department, every function has a couple advisors on our cap table. And we turn to them instead of that. It's not on our board. We're not reporting to them. It's like our sounding board. Our Yeah, they get equity. They're an advisor to the company. They're an advisor to the company. But we divided it by function. And it's either the executive or the head, now heads of department. And that's like the two or three people they get to use that are outside the company barometers that are non-investors. And by the way, they also get to pick who those people are. Like we fielded some amazing people, but... My head of marketing and comms walked in and wanted one more person with a certain set of skills. We found them and we put them on our advisory board. So she has three people she turns to on top of me and on top of the board. That I would definitely do again. And that helps with the filtering because you're getting a more diverse set. And you can sort of hear like what's thematic and what you want to apply. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing is our board process. We talked about how our value statement is 150 words because we just didn't do it the way other people do it. I think our board process is the same way. So at previous companies and when I was an investor receiving all this information, it was always decks. Beautiful, perfect decks that tell the story of the company in the last month or quarter or whatever your cadence is. We started with our Series A. Well, we didn't do anything for our first year. We just talked. We started with like, why would we spend time pushing pixels to get advice? This is a very backwards way of putting effort in to get or putting input in to get output out. So instead, we designed a process where every quarter, every department writes one to two page essay. It's actually harder to write something short and simple than to do a 50 slide deck. What happened? Where are you now? If you're marketing, like tell me your lead number, tell me your unique number, tell me your conversion, blah, blah, blah. What did you learn and where are you going? What does an average engineer need to know about marketing right now? And same in reverse, by the way, (laughs) like what happened on the foundations engineering team? And That is our internal quarterly review process. It's totally transparent and open to the company. We want everyone in the company to feel like they're totally connected to every construct of the business. And then that is also our board packet. So they have transparent insight. This is what we're going through. This is what our leaders are telling us about. So you just package up each individual report. Those like one to two page, we call them essays, quarterly planning essays, become a 20 or 25 page single space document. 
No slides. No slides. You sent it to the board before. Yeah. And you can throw, of course, if a, a picture's I worth a thousand that. words, if you want to put a graph in there because it shows what you're trying to, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, they're Notion documents. It's not very complicated. But it actually takes more thinking and less hours to put together a summary of like, where have we been? Mm-hmm. What do I need help with? Where am I going? you're not worried about things like formatting. Well, and I spent so many hours at Grand Rounds writing public facing or board facing or executive facing decks pushing pixels. Once the story was already in my head, then there's another 40 hours of work to make it look a certain way. That's a very backwards use of time. Yeah. So you asked about advice, but I do think the input that you put in changes the advice and how you can filter the advice because now you're operating in a much more high context environment. Yeah. On the board of advisors. Yeah. What were the term lengths that you would put on them? You know, I'd have to look because I don't remember. Can I tell you why I ask? I think you know what. four year. I can't remember. So let me tell you this. My advice, because I love the board of advisors thing, and yeah. I generally tend to help. Help companies put them help, together. Exactly. Yeah, because, great. Yeah, I, I know a bunch of executives. That's great. Like, I'm out of my nest at this point. Like, there's people that are going to be much more helpful than me. Help you connect them. I, especially in the high growth companies, like shorter terms that you have the opportunity to renew. Makes sense. Because modern treasury and summer of 2019 and summer of 2020 are very different businesses totally. that require very different skill sets and pieces of advice. Totally. Now, there are some people that have seen it all that are just bona fide stars where no matter what, you get them on the cap table, you bring them in. Right. Perfect. But anyway, that that's why I asked about the term length. Yeah. I'd have to look it up. I don't remember. Meaning, okay, so let me ask you it this way. Okay. Do you still have the same advisors? We have a lot of the same advisors, but some no. All right. That makes sense. One of the things that I've realized that I think everybody's realized, it's not just like me, is everyone raised too much money. And the reason everyone raised too much money was because everyone thought they had to grow much faster than they did. Yeah. And the reason everyone thought they had to grow much faster than they did was that they thought that the tailwinds of the last couple of years were going to continue to endure. Yeah. They didn't, right? Tailwinds being financial, interest rates, totally. digital transformation during COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The concern that I have that I've seen at least in our portfolio and other startups, is that there is no constraint like the way that you had constraint in the early days of modern treasury around decision-making. Once you've raised, you mean? Once you've raised a ton of money. Yeah. And so then you end up making concurrent decisions where you're like, well, we have this decision or this decision about strategic things that you want to do. Right. As opposed to prioritizing and sequencing them you just do them all yeah. because you can. You just hire people that do. And I talked to the Brex founder about this and he was actually very regretful. He said, the one thing that I would redo yeah. if I was doing the business all over again is I would sequence my decisions. I would never do anything concurrently again. Interesting. And the reason that he said that was because he had a glutton of riches that he could just make these decisions at the same time. Yeah. But it actually hurt the business. I have no idea. I'm just curious. Do you think you experienced that? I mean, maybe a little bit. Most of what we raised is still in the bank. Yeah. And we were at a smaller stage than I think some of the company at Brex and some of the companies that you're referencing. I actually would put this in the category of another exogenous event, like better lucky than good, that the whole macro environment and the pressure to become efficient and make better and more prioritized decisions happened at a stage where we could quite quickly adjust to that mode because we're small, small-ish still. Yeah. I do agree, though, that forced prioritization, it is the single hardest thing about startups, especially people who don't come from startups. You have to like 
actively let a decision not happen. Or the thing I always say to my team is like, you have to let this fire burn. Just let it burn. It's an actual thing that is having detrimental impact on our company. And we're not going to deal with it right now because we're going to deal with this other thing right now. It's very unnatural human behavior. And I do think you're right in an environment of massive resource because it's unnatural. You don't do it. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of truth to what you said. What's the toughest feedback that you've ever gotten? Oh, so much. There's no way you grow without hard feedback. Yeah, but there's one that you immediately thought of that strikes you right between the eyes. Yeah, I have one I can think of. Well, I have a funny story and then one I can think of. The funny story is a long time ago, a manager I'm so grateful to have had told me that I looked a mess because I always came to work with wet hair because I love to I love to exercise (laughs) and I still exercise all the time. It's like a big release for me. And he was like, listen, Rach, you're right at the precipice of trying to get to exec and yet you just don't look like an exec. And he was told, like, was so loving and so encouraged. Anyway, that's a funny feedback story I think about sometimes. No, the hardest feedback I got was from another manager I'm so thankful to have had, who was the first person to tell me that my focus on like promotion and moving up and drive and perseverance was having a bad effect on where I actually wanted to go. It had become the prism through which I was seeing everything. And I was like, you know, that grasping, grabbing feeling like, I want what's next. I want what's next. It's not coming. And you bring it up in too many one-on-ones and the company or your manager can feel it. Like you're seeing the work through the lens of promotion or title or money or comp or whatever the validator is, as opposed to the opposite way, which is seeing those things on the heels of the good work. And It had been happening with bad effect to me, but no one had the strength of character to tell me the truth because it's a hard thing to say to someone like you're grasping is having the opposite effect of what you want. And this person sat me down actually in a performance review a long time ago and said, we'll talk about what I wrote down. It's all really small. Your work is amazing, blah, 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 a bunch of nice things. But what this person said is, I need to tell you something that no one else is telling you, which is like, this is getting in your way and you just have to have a little more trust that your good work is going to be rewarded. And the reason I say that is the hardest feedback is what hits you in the gut. You're like, that's true. I do really care about this and I wish I could let it go and I can't. It really matters to me. And for me, the funniest part is now I manage people like that. Not all the time, but some of the time (laughs) where you have to coach. Like drive is so fun to manage and so fun to be around. But when it slips into like persistence or focus on only one thing, it becomes ineffective for the person and the company and the team and everyone around. So that's one that came to mind, like right when you asked the question. This document that you gave me working with Rachel. Oh no, you're going to quote me back to um, me, which is very dangerous. um, So Claire, again, from Stripe, has a working with Claire doc. Yeah. Uh, Did you take that? Does does this borrowed from that? No, it comes from, I've, this is the best thing, by the way. Like, if you're an executive listening to this, create one of these docs. It took me a long time to write. And Can I share this in the a, show notes? An edited version, sure. Is that okay? Yeah. What is the thing that when someone comes to work for you, <laughs> they're like, oh. Oh my God, there's so, the whole point of the document is the whole document is oh. There's so many. There's like little things in there like, I'm a compulsive editor. I can't help myself. I know it's not that fun to you submit something to someone two levels up and they like line edit your commas. I just can't (laughs) help myself. So I'd rather put it out there and say, actually, if I'm really focused and engaged, I'm editing you. That's a super tiny one. I mean, there's so many things in there. I write that most of the time I give a lot of rope to my team. I hire people that I trust. 
We've talked about my career. I'm a jack of all trades. <laughs> I have not spent 20 years selling or 20 years brand building at Clorox or P&G or whatever. So a lot, if not most of the people who work in my organizations have more years of experience doing their one specific thing than me. Early in my career, by the way, that used to really scare me. I used to be really nervous about it. Now I know it's part of my strength. I understand startups. I really know this company. I know a lot about people and I can help you, but I'm not going to lead through expertise. So I say that. And then I also say, but once in a while, I am going to call it. I'm just going to stick my neck out and I'm going to like overrule or change this. Or do, It's not going to happen very often. It's like a few times a year. I'm going to tell you when it's happening and I'm going to take the risk. I'm not going to call it and be like, if it doesn't go well, six months later, say, eh, it was that guy's fault. But I actually say it in there. So by the way, when you get to that hard bridge and you're like, really sorry, leader of X team, this is just one of those instances where overruled. I got to call it. Mm-hmm. You've laid it out there. Like, I'm not going to do this very often. So that's one. That's, that's one. one that served me in the hard moment, right? They don't read the document and think of it. But yeah. then when you get to the hard moment, they're like, well, at least you mm-hmm. told me that was mm-hmm. could happen. How often are you editing this? How static of a document is this working with Rachel? Because this is current v- written <laughs> version v. January of 2023. That's so pretty accurate. I would say every three to six months. I you go, revisit give it, this? Yeah, I give it a look. Does your it's team, too long. Does I your, need to shorten it. Does your team ever be like, you should change this. Like, yeah. I don't know if this is totally true. Actually, yeah, Matt just gave me, he was like, I think you should take this out. It's not helpful. Because one of the things in there is everyone's strength is their weakness because all my strengths are my weaknesses. And he's like, everyone knows that. <laughs> take it out. So it's meant to be a living document. And the last sentence is like, yeah, what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. You see me with more clarity than I see myself. That's, by the way, the entire journey of becoming a manager and leaders knowing yourself. I really like this doc. The other thing that strikes me as interesting and a bit novel that Modern Treasury does is about reviews and performance reviews and the way that comp is tied to that. Can you explain? Sure. It's not an individual level. No, it's all part of do it right the first time. I can tell you where it comes from, at least for me personally. Please. At one of my previous companies that will remain unnamed, we did not have a rigorous data-driven comp process. Really common for startups. Just like hire, figure it out for each individual role. We'll figure it out later. Get good people in button seat. And what had happened, not on my team, but at an adjacent team where I was mentoring a couple of young women who were close friends to each other and to me, was one came from a state school and was just interpersonally not like a high negotiating person. Really creative, super talented, has had an amazing career. One came from Stanford, much more like debate-driven communication style. One negotiated for comp in a very aggressive way, one did not. They ended up being paid like 40% different for very similar jobs. And of course, as years go on, they become friends, they find out. And the person who's paid less leaves because of course you feel undervalued because you're doing a very similar job for wildly different compensation. And that is not fair. And that story, this is from a long time ago, was like, it really affected me. Like we are losing talent for the dumbest reason. <laughs> so when we started, we became data-driven about our comp really early on. Maybe in that first year, might have taken until our second year to get access to the data where everything's in band. And of course you need to use compensation as a tool for performance management. It's not like to the cent, but the way we operate and the way I would want to operate on any hard thing, comp is just one of them, is if the truth gets out, be comfortable with what you decided. Because by the way, most of the time the truth does get out. 
So that's what we do about comp. And then every we do performance reviews every six months and we review everyone in the company against all the data and the market and make sure we're paying people fairly. Is all the comp and bonuses and adjustments tied to individual performance or is there some aspect of it that's tied to the way the company's performance? We have a company-wide bonus plan and the whole company bonuses at the same rate. It's not a huge part of our compensation. It's small. Yeah. But we do it together. One team. That's cool. Yeah. Each of your posts, each of Modern Treasury's posts ends the same way. What is past is prologue, and we're just getting started with chapter one. Yeah, Dimitri wrote that. Can you explain why? Why do you think? Oh, I, I think we all feel that way. There's so, this is going to get into my payments nerdery, and your eyes are going to glaze over. But what we do sitting inside core complex money movement, ACH wires, checks, RTP, et cetera, that is like actually the way the economy works. We all live and breathe like credit card and maybe a little bit of cash. And that's fine. But the real pillar parts of our economy don't run on that infrastructure. (laughs) The GDP moves on this other thing. And therefore, the opportunity to build software and modern infrastructure for it feels infinite. We talked about TAM being a dumb exercise when you join a startup. That's true. But when you're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and like every part of the economy, it does feel like you could work on this problem for many lifetimes. And I think that's what that sentence alludes to. Kind of daunting, isn't it? This idea that- It's both. It's daunting and motivating. You've been doing this for four years at Modern Treasury? Yeah. Can you imagine, you know, my definition of startups is a small group of people solving problems in perpetuity. Okay. Keyword in perpetuity. Yeah. Right? I just kind of made that definition up, but like, I do think that the most simplistic distillation of startups is people solving problems. I agree. I think it's actually kind of a cynical and like not sexy view of the way that company building works, but unfortunately that's what it is. Yeah. Which is why you hire a bunch of problem solvers like yourself to just go figure things out. Anyway, nonetheless, that idea of like, how much do I have in the tank to keep solving problems if today's chapter one and you're four years in? Yeah. That's why you got to work on a topic that you feel a lot of motivation to understand. Yeah. I find it energized. I mean, every startup has ups and downs and hard moments, but I find it energizing that the opportunity feels so endless. And you use the word in perpetuity. Look, it feels like you're brand new to this startup. So I'm excited to see what you all do. And I appreciate you doing this with me. Thank you. I conclude these the same. The first, are you hiring? Yeah. I'm a little bit on eggshells to ask people these days. Yeah. But are there any key roles that you or your peers are hiring for that you'd want to shout out? Yeah, we're hiring across the business, but the team that's hiring the most is sales and every function of sales, reps, BDRs, SDRs, technical salespeople and sales engineers. So anything in the sales organization, your world, Jubin. Yes. Bring them over. Let's go. And then uh, when you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? Yeah, this is the only question you told me to prepare for. Yes, it is. (laughs) It is what I'm sure many previous guests have said, like perseverance and resilience and pick yourself up. But I think the way I would answer the question or I want to answer the question is more what grit feels like Mm. when you're doing it. And, you know, when something bad happens, whatever bad is, like bad news at your company or bad health news or something, whatever, you don't get the promotion you want. It depends on the person you are, but it feels like you start sweating or you want to cry or you want to scream or like you're flushed or the hair on your neck goes up, you feel it, you feel it in your body and you need to let it out and release it. But to me, grit is the pause 
and the redirection of that energy towards something good, something productive or helpful to the person if it's health or in service of what the company needs to go after or in pursuit of your own goals. It's like the strength to channel that (laughs) into something that serves you or serves people around you or serves the company, et cetera. So anyway, that's my internal answer for what grit feels like. Great answer. Rachel Pike. Thank you. Thanks, Jubin. So nice to be here. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week. 